Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Talia Lakshmi Kalori on the show. Talia recently published an amazing collection of stories called What We Fed to the Manticore. It's a series of nine stories all written from the perspective of Anna. The book absolutely blew me away. And as you'll hear in our conversation, we have a lot of thoughts about the inner lives of animals. Please enjoy this wonderful and thoughtful conversation, and Baker will take us there. Talia, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Oh, I have so many favorites. Unfortunately, one of my favorites did not survive the pandemic, sadly. Oh no, which one? It was this wonderful little taqueria downtown called Zamora's Taqueria. It was these two mm. ladies who were like really good friends and they did pupusas and stuff like that. After sort of the shelter in place stuff was o- over, I, I went by to see if it was open and it had been closed. So mm. there's another business there, but I loved that place. Other local favorites, I love the Mad Duck and Ampersand two exceptional local places. AJ's Armenian is delicious. And then for Indian food, I actually like to go to India Sweets and Spices on Ashland, which is mostly a grocery store, but they do like a lunch counter and it's amazing. Mm, yes, absolutely. And I I, I go to, I'm more in the Northern part of Fresno. So yeah. I go to, I, I have my Indian place in the Northern part of Fresno, but it tends to be more dinner. Um, yeah. And so I, for lunch, absolutely Indian sweet and spices. And I honestly, I, I haven't been to probably AJ's as much as I should have been. I think I've only been there once. What do you order oh, AJ's? So good. They have this, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but they have this like roasted red pepper thing. I think it's pronounced Ajika, but I could be incorrect in saying that. But, and then they do like a, like a goat cheese flatbread, all the like appetizer type things. I like to do like a sort of snack dinner situation. Yeah. I think they call that meze, yeah. which I like, <laughs> you know, I'm all about the meze because it means lots of pita and lots of dip. That's and, like my favorite meze thing is like some Mohammeda and some like hummus. And then you just kind of, right. um, and it, it, I mean, why do you even need a meal at that point? Why? You know, it, and I always over order, always. Well, I I just want to <laughs> say at the jump, making that quick transition uh, to your book. Yeah. Um, and we're going to get into your book more in detail later. We're going to kind of talk about some philosophical things to start. The book uh, hit me specially this year because I lost a, a pet that I've had mm-hmm. uh, that my partner and I got when we got married just like six months after we got married and I lost that dog this year. And so thinking about relationships between humans and animals, quote unquote, you know, those are both in quotations, has been something I've been thinking about a lot, especially as like, I had this kind of strange feelings of like, should I be mourning a pet more than I've mourned some humans that I've lost in my life? And I had that experience this year where I was not that we need to uh, have a ranking system for how how we mourn, but uh, these kind of natural human reactions to like, I am having 
some deep emotional trauma right now from losing a pet. And, you know, it's more than a pet, you know, it's, we can talk about that in more detail, but uh, your book spoke to me um, in part because of loss that I've had. And there's lots of things that I want to talk about, but I want to kind of actually start with something silly, which is most of us, or a lot of us grew up watching Disney movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where we kind of first saw cartoons, you know, animals being portrayed. Uh, How would you contrast what you're doing in your book with what Disney does? Oh, wow. That is a huge question. Um, First, I want to say I'm very sorry for the loss of your pet. We actually lost a cat last year who we had for 13 years as well. And that's, I I relate and those are very important relationships. I actually think that they're very significant. So I I feel you on that. You know, I I think what Disney does, which is very interesting because I, I do like a lot of the things that Disney puts out. One of the things I think is very interesting about them though, is they take stories that already already exist, and then they um, sweeten them, I think, so that younger audiences can enjoy them. And I think one of the things that they do, particularly when it comes to animal stories, is I, I actually think they anthropomorphize quite a bit, which is what I hope I'm not doing. Um, although I do recognize that there's a lot of um, what could be perceived as human emotion that I'm imputing to the animals I write about. I personally feel like animals do have significant and rich emotional lives. We just don't necessarily understand them. And so I think one of the things that that Disney might be doing is, is taking um, a human feeling and putting an animal face on it so that the audiences can feel that they are the different creatures that are being portrayed without necessarily diving into some of the, I would say, like meatier portions of animal life. I'm thinking, you know, animal lives can be very viscerally violent or they there can be a lot of loss. There's a lot of conflict and it's sometimes a little darker than than maybe a, a kid's film would would have space for. Well, you brought up two things I was planning to talk about, and let's just jump in the first one. I think there's some kind of unavoidable anthropomorph. Uh, that's such a silly <laughs> yeah. word. Anthropomorphization that happens just naturally because we're the ones creating it, right? But, absolutely. But, right, it, like there's, it's unavoidable. But how did you think about that as you were writing the book and trying your best to, you know, because all fiction is creating, creating, trying to create other beings, right? Um, right and bring them right. to life. How, how, how do you, how did you think about that? And what did you have any things that you tried to mental frameworks for how to avoid that trap? I, I had a couple of, of techniques that I used and I have to give credit to a lot of my writing partners for this is um, years and years ago, I went to a workshop at the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, which is one of my favorite, actually the only workshop I've ever attended. And it is, in my opinion, the very best. And so if you're a writer and you want a workshop, go to the Tin House Summer Workshop. I studied with Anthony Dore, who's a spectacular writer, and he talked about this idea of defamiliarization. And that was very helpful to me when I was working on a lot of my stories because you know, we all exist in the same world and there are things that humans experience that animals also experience and observe, but they don't have the same language for it. So one of the techniques I used was the idea of describing um, a feature of the environment from as though I had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. I had some writing partners who would point out to me when when something that I was writing sounded too human, like I, they couldn't quite buy into the idea that a wolf or, or a pigeon or what have you would know what um, I was having them describe. 
And then the other thing I really focused on a lot was I did a significant amount of research on animal behavior and and I think trying to sort of like ground myself in what an animal is capable of perceiving in terms of what they can see as far as color, what their habitat is like for them, where they tend to you know, make their homes, that sort of thing. If I could ground myself in their behavior, then I was also, you know, to be fair, taking some of my own perceptions and emotions and ways of feeling and filtering them through that kind of lens. But you're right. I mean, there is some human imposition that I that I infused into these animals. And it's funny, after I finished this collection, this wonderful book came out called An Immense World by Ed Young. He writes for The Atlantic. And he talked about all these different animal perceptions, like uh, echolocation and and how light is perceived and how some animals and insects and so forth have really small, narrow worlds of perception. And he talked about this idea of an umwelt, which is like the slice of the world that a creature can perceive and that we all perceive like one piece of the greater world out there. And and no one, no creature is perceiving the whole of anything, mm. but together a whole is created. So I, I think about that. I I read a lot of his journalism when I was researching. I really love that book so much. So if anyone is interested in animal perception, that's a great one. And I haven't read that one. I read his others, uh, other one about- Oh, I Contain Multitudes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, so that I'll add that one to my list. And I, I think there's, I mean, we could talk about two different layers too, and this is included in your book, which is there's like domesticated animals and then there's quote wild animals. It's interesting to think about how you know, animals have evolved. If we take cats or dogs, for example, they've evolved, bred them, and they've evolved to match our desires in those animals. And I'm thinking that probably the harder thing to write about is is wild animals in some sense, because we're removed from their day to day. Most of us have grown up with a pet or something, and we can kind of you know, have a have daily uh, interactions such that we can develop kind of an understanding of who they are. So yeah. did you think about those as two different categories when you were writing? I thought about them on a spectrum because um, I, I think that the difference between a wild animal and a pet, I think, is larger than the difference between a domesticated working animal and a pet and a domesticated working animal and a wild animal. I think there's there's a bit of a spectrum. And I think of it in terms of um, what the purpose of the relationship is. Like with pets, it's companionship. Mm. And it's kind of funny because we have these little creatures that don't speak our language and we share space with them and somehow it works. But it's really the the interdependence is tied to companionship. Whereas for something like say a draft horse or um, a donkey, that's a working animal that you're depending on for some other reason. And I think that the purpose of the relationship will generate the need for comprehension across the species. This is just what I imagine. I don't even know if this is true, but um, it, it generates a need for comprehension. And then the more you need to understand another creature, the, the more you'll try, I think. I don't really feel a need to understand spiders. So I don't think about whether or not they- <laughs> I don't want to understand spiders feelings. either. <laughs> but the weird part is I, I learned recently that spiders might be able to dream. So then of course that changes my own perspective. Like, right. Uh, so what do they dream about? I don't know. I think it's fascinating. And it's interesting too, and I don't, I don't know how I feel about this philosophically, but I think people will treat sentience that's closer to our sentience differently than other kinds of sentience, right? So like an animal that has what we assume are similar kind of emotional experiences will maybe get treated in a certain way than a bug whose emotional experience sentience is what we would assume would be inferior or 
uh, not as developed or complex. And yeah. it, you know, it, I mean, if you really take a step back, it just seems pretty arbitrary how we determine what sentience matters. It is arbitrary. It is because who knows what they think. I'm just probably going to name check a bunch of wonderful books, but there's another great book called The White Bone by Barbara Gowdy. And she wrote a novel about elephants from the elephant perspective. But what was so cool about this book is that um, this like elephant culture and elephant mythology also includes a discussion of the other animals that they share space with. And all of these different animals view themselves as the central, most important keystone animal in their environment. And they're the ones who are the special important ones. And it's the other ones that are not that interesting. And so I, I think that that's actually very human behavior. Yeah. We're all solipsistic well. maybe. Um, <laughs> well, let's, uh, talk about uh, nature and psychological diversity, because we're already uh, kind of jumping into this category, but something I wanted to think about, and uh, because something that's at least a burgeoning idea is this idea of neurodiversity, which mm -hmm. is like uh, this concept that like we need to expand, not just assuming that one normative way of uh, a brain functioning is the way that all brains should function. And so I'm wondering what this concept how it applies to the animal world. Cause I think, I think we're kind of moving at least from my point of view in a direction where we're seeing animals as closer and closer parts of our world. Do you mm -hmm. see that as accurate? And how do you think about that concept of neurodiversity as it relates to your work? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. I mean, I do, I do think that's accurate. I think that, um, I think that the more we learn about the creatures that share our environment, the more we are able to see that there's not the difference between all of us that we may have originally believed. I think the one that strikes me the most is learning about plant communication networks. Mm. The idea of trees and like fungal networks under the soil fostering communication through these like electromagnetic pulses and it'll change how trees will behave and they'll they'll release pheromones that repel in like kind of insects that will eat their leaves and that sort of thing so there's communication about warnings and there's communication about what's going on in the environment around them and i you know 15 20 years ago i never would have thought that trees communicate with each other and can act collectively but they can, or at least that's what the science is beginning to show. And I think that that's a beautiful thing because it can help us recognize that something that we maybe didn't think of as sentient or as sensitive to its environment is. And if we can see that about a plant, then we can see that about another person. And so I think that expansiveness in trying to understand the environment around us can be a really important piece of expansiveness in understanding our communities. Are you optimistic about humans' relationship to the non-human animal world? I think it depends, probably. Um, sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm very optimistic about it. I think that I think that people are more curious than they used to be. But I also think that many of us who are very, very curious don't have a whole lot of agency about how larger systems operate. I'm optimistic about how people feel about the natural world. I don't know yet if I'm optimistic about how we are treating the natural world. I agree. I, I think <laughs> there's a difference between feeling and action, of course. And yeah. I think the thing that made me most optimistic that I saw recently was a program in Canada to create 
nature overpasses over freeway so animals could freely cross. Love that. Yeah. And I, as someone that drives through farm country to get to work every day, you know, I, of course, see dead animals on the road almost every day. Sometimes I have less compassion, particularly when it's a, a possum. So I had to run in with a possum a long time ago. But, you know, generally speaking, I'm just like, oh, well, that's terrible. And yeah. then I just kind of move on with my day. But I don't think about it beyond that. And so there's this kind of feeling, kind of the same feeling when you uh, see those uh, dog rescue commercials where you you have a moment of sadness, which I felt, you know, in some in some of your stories in the book, I felt, you know, I had that moment. And then, you know, the question is like, well, what what now? What now? What 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 what's the what's the correlate that goes with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that wildlife corridors are a wonderful thing. I think that generally speaking, considering ourselves as a part of the environment that is participating in the system as a whole, as opposed to something that acts upon the environment and has dominion over it can um, just by virtue of changing our framing, change how we, how we treat it. Um, I think that yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's it's often frustrating if you're just one individual person who doesn't have really any control over things like freeway paths and, <laughs> yeah. and it, it feels overwhelming. It does. I mean, I think actually yeah. about say mountain lions in the in the um, Los Angeles National Forest and how they're genetically sequestered into little clusters because they can't move to the other parts of the mountains to breed with other groups, that sort of thing. I mean, those are, these are all things that, you know, when the freeways were being built, no one was thinking about, but now we see the long-term impact. I mean, I think that there are things that every person can choose to do that are reducing their overall impact on the environment. And I think that every day is an opportunity to choose something that has a, a lighter footprint, but also reaching out to advocacy groups and joining activities to clean up like the for example San Joaquin River you can join a San Joaquin River cleanup group you can write to your representatives you can choose to walk to the store across the street if that's available that kind of stuff so we're going to jump into a section my favorite section which is called overrated versus underrated i'm going to throw a bunch of things at you you just tell me whether you think they're over or underrated some will be <laughs> total curveballs some will make sense and feel free to pass on any of them okay um so the first one is the portrayal of the snake in the garden of eden in the bible over or underrated underrated i don't know okay why well i think maybe underrated isn't the right word i think the the snake is I think the snake is perceived unfairly. It's just a snake, man, doing a snake stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's probably a reason the snake was chosen as that character, human fear of snake. And now the snake, you know, it's a vicious cycle for the poor snakes. Right. Now they're, but I was they're... just reading um, Ada Lamone poem where she was talking about her house and she was naming the gardener snakes because, and she says in the poem, if I name them, then I cannot kill them. Something along those lines, mm. you know, this idea that, you know, whenever we refer to an animal by a blanket species term, it almost seems in some ways that it's easier to objectify it. And when we start That's naming true. things, true. but maybe, maybe Satan wasn't a good name for that poor snake. <laughs> Probably not. We don't even yes. know what kind of snake it was. Uh, next one. Uh, MFA programs over underrated. 
I I haven't been to one, so I don't know. I've heard both sides of the equation. Both. Why didn't opinions. you go to one? You know, honestly, I didn't know that they existed until my thirties, and by that time, I was already working, paying down my educational debt, and I thought, hmm, I don't know if I can stop for a few years to go get an MFA. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't know that they were an available program until, mm. yeah. Well, it seems like you benefited from a shorter term uh, program. So do you think we need more short term kind of institutes and workshops? I think they're great. Yeah, I would love to see more more short term workshops. And, I, and I've heard from writers who are parents that it's often very challenging if you are a parent to make it to a residency or a workshop. So parent friendly opportunities, I think, are another area where we could we could do more. OK, next one. Uh, Aesop's Fables over underrated underrated. Oh, okay. So you, you like how they portray animals or the messages? I like that they portray animals in the first place. And so I think that, although it's been a long time since I've read them, to be honest. What, what Aesop fable comes to mind? I can't even think of one, honestly. I know they're kind of a blanket thing, but if you, uh, there's always, I always feel like there's like some kind of wolf. There's some kind of rabbit. There, you know, those are, I, I I think I can think of characters, but I can't really yeah, tell, right. you a, tell you a story. <laughs> I can't tell you a specific one. All right. Next one. Uh, the San Diego Zoo, over or underrated? Overrated. Why? Too crowded. Too crowded. Too crowded. And I think I like the idea of education to the public about animals. I have mixed feelings about zoos. I think they're a really important educational tool and zoos can be very valuable in terms of reviving the population of a species, particularly when you have a very endangered species, like for example, the red wolf, they're mostly extinct in the wild. So red wolves and zoos are kind of the only place we have right now to help recover the population. Um, but I think that zoos should focus a lot more on the well-being of the animals that they have there. I think the San Diego Zoo has a lot of really great features, but it would be nice to see it enhance animal recovery and their environments more. Okay. Next one. Uh, the poetry of Rajiv Mahabir. Excellent. Okay. So Amazing. underrated. I, he, he should win all the awards always forever. Yes. Okay. Where should people start with him and why do you love his writing? You know, honestly, um, I don't have it with me, but um, he did some chat books early in his career that I have and they're very beautiful. He has this other one, um, that uh, called Antimon. It's like a memoir, poetic memoir that came out recently. And just pretty much, I, you know, I'd actually start with Antimon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read any, so I'm, it's it's been added to my list. Uh, next one, uh, the book White Fang by Jack London. Um, I think that's underrated. Okay. Why? You know, I think it's it's often passed off as, well, at least it was presented to me as something for younger readers. Um, but I think that it's really... I think that it's really nuanced and I think that it's a valuable piece of literature when speaking about place-based writing and a humanity's place in the environment. And I think going back to kind of this, like the simplification that happens with uh, Disney movies, this is kind of a more complex story of an animal than, and, and oftentimes kids get the book pretty early on in their education experience. And so it's maybe a good, uh, a good book to start to kind of add some mm -hmm. complexity. All right. Next one. Uh, living in a subdivision, over or underrated? Neutral. Neutral. Okay. Yeah. It okay. kind of depends on what a person needs from it. Do you get what you need from living in a subdivision? I like having neighbors. 
Um, <laughs> I live, <laughs> I mean, I live in a subdivision that's pretty walkable and pretty close to like things like stores and whatnot. And it's pretty mm-hmm. social. So I do not every subdivision is like that. Some of them are isolated and you can't really walk anywhere very easily. It depends on the subdivision. Probably. I like the idea of walkability mostly because I like to be able to walk places. I like to get to know my neighbors, that kind of thing. Wonderful. Two more. Uh, the work of Cy Montgomery. Love it. Mm. Which, Love which it. is your favorite book? Mine's Soul Hummingbirds. Of an octopus. Oh, okay. Octopus. I'm a hummingbird person. We have a lot of feeders in our backyard. Yeah. Um, and I haven't read Soul of an Octopus. What's uh, Give us the quick take. So Soul of an Octopus is she befriended an octopus at an aquarium and, you know, did a bunch of research on, on octopuses. I learned it's not octopi which is a total betrayal i mean yeah. come on like it's just octopi <laughs> you know language is made up anyway come on let's right. just let's just get over this but she um she did a lot of research on on them and their perception she be- basically befriended one at an aquarium and like so interesting to learn about how they perceive the world around them like taste and patience and it was just really wonderful when i read the hummingbird book and uh, she was describing you know just how fragile that body is and versus the the speed and deafness that uh, hummingbirds operate it's just you know it's some of my favorite writing um, mm. about animals let's jump into your book um, i want to talk about two different stories within it because i don't want to go do too deep in because i think people just need to jump in and read but i want to talk about the first story uh, the good donkey and in particular what what we were talking about at the beginning about for me loss and mourning and relationship with an animal the good donkey chapter chap story not chapter excuse me jumped out to me so can you describe how you thought about creating this relationship dynamic between hafiz i think is how you say it and and the donkey so it started out really the first the first draft of this story had far more donkey well not that it was more donkey but it was the character of hafiz was not as well developed um, and I really wanted, I really wanted to write about this particular donkey. And and I was going through edits with a magazine called The Common, which is really wonderful. And I was working with the editor, and she asked for more context for the story and more depth for Hafiz's character, and to to tell us a little bit more about him which led to expanding the relationship and really the way i ended up conceptualizing it is is that they need each other i think when i had first written in an earlier draft the donkey was not um, he was dependent on hafiz but hafiz was not as dependent on him and once i created a re- a relationship that involved that interdependence i think that the depth of both characters was was really elevated significantly. So I think of it as dependence. Yeah, and I think we there's lots of animals that are that have symbiotic relationships with other animals, but maybe we don't because I, I think there's this you know tendency to see humans in this kind of different sphere or realm, and then the animal world below. But seeing seeing that symbiosis and and really showing that we can't exist without each other i think is you know i think we're we're thinking about this more with with bees most recently because we're mm-hmm. thinking about pollinization and or pol- pol- pollinization pollinating i don't know i don't know what the word is but we're thinking about how we're dependent on each other and i think i think that's uncomfortable for people you know they yeah. you know they don't want to feel like they're dependent on a creature that they think they lord over. And so that's that's what spoke to me in that chapter is seeing that 
kind of egalitarian relationship or that symbiotic relationship between Hafiz and the donkey. Thank you. That's I'm glad that that came through. Let's talk about a level of tolerance now. Uh, that's the other chapter I wanted to... Uh, gosh, I keep saying chapter stories. Do we need more biographies of animals? Do Oh, that you know, I would love that, actually. I would love that. Because it's based on it's based on an actual story. And yeah. so, you know, I, I, I don't think there is maybe a genre for animal biographies in the sense of like, you know, a biography you have where there's a telling of events. And I don't, I don't know if that genre could exist, but I think I would like it to exist, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I would be very interested. There's a, a wonderful book that um, a collection of essays called Animal Strike Curious Poses that actually covers some very famous animals or animal-human relationships that that I think is a really interesting starting point for for reading along those lines. So can you take people through kind of the research, how you took an actual story of an animal and then crafted it into something uh, that was your story? Yeah. So for a level of tolerance, I started with the obituaries of this very famous wolf. Um, and I, I wrote this particular story several years ago. And in the intervening years, I think a book has been written about this particular wolf. She was very famous. And she was uh, part of the um, one of the wolf packs that was living in Yellowstone. And her, num this real wolf, the number that she was tagged with was 832F, and she was also called the 06 female. So she's a famous, famous wolf. Wildlife photographers would travel to Yellowstone just to see if they could catch a glimpse of her. And had she's like, as far as wolves go, if you can have like the Mick Jagger of wolves, that was mm -hmm. basically her. And she um, wandered out of the park, like not even that far out of the boundaries of the national park and was shot by a hunter who had a permit. But it was like you know, she was on one side of the line and was protected. And then she took a few steps and ceased to be protected. And so there was this outpouring of grief for her death. And it was so significant that the person who did hunt her refused to be identified. And she had a, an obituary in the New York Times. She had an obituary in Outside Magazine. So I, I started and I was like very moved when I read those. And I was like, personally very devastated and I had never been wolf watching, but I just felt very like, I just, to me, it felt like a very profound loss. And so I started with the obituaries and I started researching wolf populations and also what wolves mean to an ecosystem that they exist in. And then I kind of took those things and I, I married them together. And with this story, um, I thought about I thought about that issue of a wolf moving through her natural range and not really ever having a reason to pay attention to these arbitrary boundaries that humans set in place. Because to a wolf, uh, a national park boundary is not a real thing. That does, that's not, their environment is their environment and the lines that we draw are are quite frankly, meaningless to them. Um, and so I thought about how how that would be perceived by a wolf to be in a place that is where they live and suddenly some part of it becomes unsafe. So I, I crafted it as a, a, a way to imagine how she might try to understand that. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between animals hunting other animals and humans hunting animals? Um, in my mind, there is. 
And I and I'll, I'll I'll have a caveat first, which is that I know that there are a lot of indigenous communities that have hunting as part of their traditional practices. That's not the hunting that I'm thinking of when I say there's a distinction. I'm thinking of like recreational hunting, and I think that there is a difference between humans recreationally hunting and animals hunting because animals are not hunting most of the time. They're not hunting to entertain themselves, but as a per- I don't personally hunt, so I I can't say for sure, but how it looks to me from the outside is that it is a pastime, right? Like, so I might go hiking or I might, you know, go like water skiing or something as a pastime. And I guess the way it looks from the outside for some of these practices is that it's, it's not a necessary activity. Um, It's an activity that's undertaken, you know, to pat as an entertainment. But again, I think that's, to me, that's different than someone who is um, hunting as part of like a traditional practice. But it, but to me, that's, that's the distinction is an animal's hunting as part of their natural behavior. And a human is, is not really anymore because most of our, our life is built around not needing to. Yeah. It seems like there's a few different layers of reflection you can have on it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, obviously what you're describing is like intent, Mm-hmm. Um, or the purpose. There's also the animal suffering element of it too, mm-hmm. uh, that I often think about, which is, you know, if, uh, if my dog gets out and is attacked by a coyotes, you know, it will probably be a pretty gruesome death versus, you know, when I took my dog to be put down last December in the nice, he was on a cushiony chair and, yeah. you know, had some, had some sedatives and different things. And, so, it's, you know, there's also kind of that dynamic too. And so it, in my mind, like, I agree with you. It seems that, you know, if you're just killing for pleasure, that's a definite distinction from people, you know, animals killing to survive and, uh, or indigenous communities killing to survive and then yeah. pleasure. But I also want to think about pain and suffering. Cause that's, I think a lot of the animal rights movement is about pain and suffering in some ways. And that's dealing with factory farming and domestication and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Another feature, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's jump into our last section, which is book recommendations. You've already given us a few. And these can be books related to your research for the book or just books in general that have spoken to you or just important books that you have valued over time. Oh, the one that I want to recommend the most is um, The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh, which is to me like... I feel that that was a life-changing book for me. And it was probably the most significant for this collection in the sense that I actually read it after I'd already started writing the stories in this collection. I was like maybe two, two, three stories in. Um, but the the sort of premise behind this book is he is examining the history of literature in the context of whether or not we write the non-human as part of the story. And I think of The Great Derangement as as a book where the premise is, you know, we should include consideration of the non-human experience in literature. And particularly, we should include climate change in the scope of what we are writing right now. And the idea is that literature that does not um, include it, contemplate it, acknowledge it is in this, in a way concealing it. And it's too extreme to be concealed anymore. And so to me, and, and to me, that was very much like, um, it almost felt like permission to continue writing the way I was writing. It felt like he was asking writers um 
to to take climate writing and non-human members of our greater global community more seriously as part of the story. And, um, and I was doing that, but I wasn't sure if anyone would want to read work like that. And then when he wrote that, you know, books should acknowledge climate change, books should acknowledge nature. And, and I felt like, I don't know, encouraged, I think. Um, and to me, that was very, very significant. So absolutely the great derangement is, is my number one recommendation. Also, um, an immense world love love that book and then pretty much every book i read for my for my citations i would recommend those because I, I loved them all perfect well uh what are you up to next i am working on a novel um it's very early early days i'm working on the first draft so um that should uh should take a little time to put together i did have a story come out um recently in the most recent issue of orion which is set in the sierra nevadas so if anyone's looking for a local piece um i have a piece of fiction out with them perfect well thank you for doing this with me i really appreciate it thank you so much for having me this was wonderful thanks for listening everybody i hope you enjoyed our conversation as always you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating review or by making a financial contribution at our patreon page www.patreon.com slash fresno's best we'll see you next time